hearing creaks coming from your closet. Rustling outside your window. window. Did you hear guttural woots or wood knocks deep in the woods during your last camping trip? Ever seen strange lights in the sky? Ever feel like someone or something is in the room with you? Rest assured, you are not alone. We are not alone. Take a dive into the strange, unusual, and hauntingly true. You've stumbled upon the Line Begins to Blur podcast. Join your host, Chris G., as he explores the paranormal, cryptid sightings, supernatural events, along with a little true crime from the past and present. Hey, peeps. Welcome back to another episode of the Line Begins to Blur podcast. It is I, your host, Chris G., and I just want to let you know that it's so great to be back. I can't tell you enough how excited I am. I am super eager to share some of the fantastic stories and subject matter that I've been digging up over the last few months. We have an awesome season planned with new guests, new stories, and a couple bonus episodes to help fill your gullet with nuggets of paranormal goodness. Yum. Today, I will be touching on the sordid history of vampire lore, how the tales came to be, and how the mystique has grown to still permeate our pop culture to this day. Also on this episode, I will talk about Mercy Brown, the poor soul that was labeled a vampire and whose remains were used to try and cure a sick loved one. If you don't know this story, let me tell you, you're in for a real treat. But before we dive into the nitty gritty and get this party started, let's start with You Got It, the World Weirdly News. Come on, let's do it. London YouTuber claims to have been abducted by aliens and fallen in love with one of them. Sick of men on Earth, London actress Abby Bella says that she hopes to normalize interspecies dating. Bored by the pandemic and unimpressed by the offerings of men on Earth, Bella explained that she joked online about wanting an alien to abduct her and plant his interstellar seed. Before long, she began to have dreams of a white light and heard voices in her dreams. One in particular that commanded her to Bella claims to have never heard the voice before, but yet she knew exactly what it meant. The next evening, she sat next to an open window and waited. Before Bella knew it, she wasn't in her bedroom any longer. She claimed that there was a bright green beam that transported her to the UFO. Now while in the belly of a flying saucer, she encountered five aliens. According to Bella, they were tall and slender, but she really couldn't make out their true forms. When asked about it, she said, I really couldn't see them clearly and they telepathically said I'm not ready to see them yet. But from what I could see, they had a slight green hue and big black eyes with human features such as eyebrows. Surprisingly, Bella wasn't frightened. Actually, on the contrary, she was love-struck. Alas, it was not meant to be. The star-crossed lovers faced a few hurdles. For one, the alien told her that dating a human was considered taboo where he was from, although for her, he was willing to break the rules. There was just one catch. Bella would have to leave planet Earth and never look back. He said I had to consent to go with them, but I didn't want to say yes because I knew it meant that they would take me away and never to return. I guess it's true what they say. The heart doesn't know what it wants until it finds it. Hopefully she finds what she's looking for. Otherwise, maybe some lucky guy can go out and rent a Halloween costume and plant that interstellar seed. 
Okay, gang. I'm here at Skinwalker Valley Crematorium. We are investigating reports of paranormal activity here. Alright, stick around and let's see if we can debunk the reports. Uh. Hey. Okay. Hello. Is there anyone or anything here with me right now? Hello. I repeat. Is there anyone or anything here with me right now? Oh, wow, man. Whoa, did you hear that? Whoa, I got a response. Oh, man, that's awesome. Oh, man. Do what? And what if I don't? What, what will happen? Oh man! Tell me, what is it? What is it that I must do? if I don't go. hide. Spirit, what will I lose if I don't go to devilshide.com? Uh, I can't take much more of this, man. I must know. What will I lose? Hey, creeps and peeps. 
We here at Devil's Hide have partnered up with the Line Begins to Blur podcast to offer you sinisterly cool apparel and accessories. We are a brand focusing on horror, paranormal, rockabilly, and sugar skull graphic tees and accessories. We love all things creepy, geeky, and cheeky, and because of this, we often found it challenging to find cool threads to express our unique taste. We figured we wouldn't be the only ones to have this problem, so we created Devil's Hide Subculture Threads. We have some of the coolest designs and hard-to-find graphic tees in the afterlife. We only offer the highest quality garments available to print on. Now rest assured, not in peace, you will love your gear from devilshide.com. We offer unique men's, women's tees, tanks, and hoodies. We also offer children's sizes for most of our killer designs. Speaking of sizes, our men's slash unisex tees and hoodies are offered in sizes up to 4 and 5 extra large. As a special offer to the Line Begins to Blur podcast listeners, we are offering a special discount code to save 20% off your purchase. Just go to www.devilshigh.com. That's www.devilshide.com and use Blur20 at checkout to apply the discount. Trust me, you will not regret it. Thanks for giving us a minute to share this with you, and we will now let you get back to the podcast. Cheers. Vampires, also known as a vampire in popular legend, often refers to a creature that preys upon humans and animals alike. They survive generally by consuming their blood and sleeping in coffins embedded with soil from their homeland or burial plot. Often featured in folklore and fiction of various cultures for hundreds of years. Their origins seem to be rooted predominantly in medieval Europe. They remain a staple in pop culture, although belief in them as a reality has waned in modern times. Because there's a long history of walking corpses and blood-sucking ghouls in folklore, it is difficult to pin down a distinct set of characteristics consistently attributed only to vampires. Crucial vampire standard myth is the consumption of human blood or other essence, such as body fluids or psychic energy. Hey, shout out to what we do in the shadows, energy vampire. Followed closely by the possession of sharp teeth or fangs with which said vampires use to facilitate the task of chowing down on some freshly baked typo. In most depictions, vampires are undead, that is to say having been somehow revived after death, and many are said to rise nightly from their graves or coffins. Vampires are typically said to be of pale skin and range in appearance from grotesque to supernaturally beautiful, depending on the tale or who's telling it. Another frequently cited physical characteristic is the inability to cast a reflection in a mirror or cast a shadow. This often translates into the inability to be photographed or recorded on film. A person may become a vampire in a variety of ways, the most common of which is to be bitten by a vampire, thus transferring the disease into the unfortunate victim who must die before being reborn as an eternal creature of the night. Other methods include sorcery, committing suicide, contagion, or as stupid as it sounds, having a cat jump over a person's corpse. Speaking of stupid ways to catch the blood-sucking bug, way back in the day, some people believed that babies born with teeth or on Christmas were predisposed to becoming vampires. While vampires usually do not die of disease or other normal human afflictions, and they are indeed often said to have faster than normal healing capabilities, hmm, wonder if Wolverine on the down low is a vamp. Hmm. Anyway, 
Although there are various methods for their destruction, the most popular of those include a wooden stick through the heart, fire, decapitation, and exposure to sunlight. Vampires are often depicted as being repelled by garlic, running water, or Christian implements such as crucifixes and holy water. In some stories, vampires may only enter a home if they've been invited, and in others, they may be distracted by the scattering of objects such as seeds or grains that they are compelled to count, thereby enabling potential victims to escape. Fun fact, Sesame Street developed one of its most beloved characters, the Count, based on this common belief that a vampire is utterly obligated to stop and tally up anything that is presented to him in any significant quantity over one. One. One, one counting one, one, vampire. <laughs> Creatures with vampiric characteristics have appeared at least as far back as ancient Greece, where stories were told of creatures that attacked people in their sleep and drained them of their life-giving bodily fluids. Tales of walking corpses that drank the blood of the living and spread plague flourished in medieval Europe in times of disease. And people lacking a modern understanding of infectious disease came to believe that those who became vampires preyed first upon their own families. Research from the 20th and 21st centuries has concluded that characteristics associated with vampires can be traced back to certain diseases such as porphyria. That mainly affects the nervous system along with the skin. It makes one sensitive to sunlight and giving the person red or brown urine. Or tuberculosis, which causes wasting. Pellagra, a disease that thins the skin. And rabies, which causes biting and general sensitivities that could lead to repulsion by light or garlic. Vampire myths were especially popular in Eastern Europe, and the word vampire most likely originates from that region. Digging up the bodies of suspected vampires was practiced in many cultures throughout Europe and it is thought that the natural characteristics of decomposition, such as receding gums and the appearance of growing hair and fingernails, reinforced the belief that corpses were in fact continuing some manner of life after death. Also possibly contributing to this belief was the premature declaration of death for people who were not quite dead. Because of the constraints of medical diagnoses and understanding at the time, people who were very ill or sometimes even very drunk in a coma or even in shock, were thought dead and later miraculously recovered, sometimes too late to prevent their burial. Yes, people, people were often accidentally buried alive. This happened so frequently that special coffins with bells known as security coffins or even tombs with escape hatches were developed, with the hopes that this would alert the gravekeeper to the unfortunate mistake that had been made, or allowing the poor soul to escape the dark cryptic pit of certain doom. Belief in vampires led to such rituals as staking corpses through the heart before they were buried. In some cultures, the dead were buried face down to prevent them from finding their way out of the graves. There have even been accounts of whole villages falling prey and succumbing to the evil ways of the vampire. Take this historic account from Europe, for example. In January 1732, the Carpathian Mountains loomed ominously to the east as if nature herself was conspiring with evil. In the valley below, a shadow had been draped over the corpses that now littered the quiet cemetery. Of the 40 villagers exhumed that morning, a total of 13 had been identified as vampires. Fresh blood seeped from their mouth, nose, or the gaping wounds in their chests where the stake had been pounded in. The gore was clear evidence of their demonic guilt. A regiment medical officer dispatched by the Honorable Supreme Command surveyed the grisly scene 
and was clearly uneasy about being sent to the small village on the remote edge of the Habsburg Empire. His disgust for the local Hungarian villagers opposed to Turkish law was evident as he gazed upon a newborn child, who, because of a careless burial, had been half-eaten by dogs. The young doctor hunched over what had once been the child's mother, a 20-year-old peasant woman named Stana, and proceeded with his dissection. He noted that she was quite complete and undecayed, despite having died in childbirth two months earlier. But like the others, her blood had not coagulated, and after prying open her ribcage, he documented that her lungs, liver, and spleen were all still fresh. The woman's skin was described as fresh and vivid, and she had a pool of extravascular blood in her stomach and chest cavity. The only interpretation could be that, after being turned into a vampire, she had risen from her grave to feast on the blood of the living. After the examination had taken place, the medical officer wrote in his official report, the heads of the vampires were cut off by the local gypsies and then burned along with the bodies and then the ashes were thrown into the river Morava. The first to be transformed, as learned from the Serbian villagers, was a former soldier who had fled his post in Turkey after being troubled by a vampire there. However, after settling in the village and being engaged to his neighbor's daughter, he met with a sudden and unexpected death. Not long after, people began to report seeing the soldier wandering through the village after nightfall. Some swore that he had even attacked them, or that he was observed taking the shape of a black dog as though hunting for prey. More than 20 people had mysteriously died in the village since the man met his untimely end, and most within a few months of each other. The soldier attacked not only the people, but also the cattle, and sucked out their blood. These were the two ways by which vampirism had been spread throughout the country. Some were bitten directly, while others had eaten the infected meat and became vampires as well. Apparently, once they were turned, vampires not only behaved as though possessed by wild beasts, they could also adopt a beastly shape or transmit their vampirism through animals to an unsuspecting human victim. In order to end the possessed soldier's reign of terror, the villagers of Medvedia in Serbia, where this is said to have taken place, drove a stake through his heart, according to their custom whereby he gave an audible groan and bled copiously. Vampires were almost entirely unknown to the European imagination prior to 1730, and the medical officer's strange report would become known as the most thoroughly documented, as well as the most widely circulated vampire narrative in the world. Along with it came a rich folkloric tradition which quickly merged with European ideas of witchcraft that had gripped the continent for the past three centuries. These stories would be widely reproduced in French, German, and later in English, to eventually find their way into the hands of an obscure Irish writer and theater manager by the name of Bram Stoker. The storyline of Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, about a Transylvanian count and his invasion of English virtue, would be almost entirely original. However, key attributes of the vampire itself would draw directly from Slavic folklore particularly where there was an overlap with European witchcraft. Now, while Bram Stoker's Dracula was an elegant and seductive aristocrat, the Slavic vampires were typically rural villagers that had become possessed. In appearance and mannerism, they would have shared more in common with Max Schrex's animalistic performance in the German silent classic Nosferatu than they would have with Bela Lugosi's theatrical mesmerism as a Hungarian count. However, the depiction of the vampire as a savage beast of prey. 
the infection of new vampires through bites or contaminated blood, their ability to transform into specific animal familiars, especially wolves and bats, and the method of dispatching the undead by murdering them in their coffins while they slept would all be borrowed directly from Slavic folklore. Many popular vampire beliefs, such as methods of survival and destruction, vampires as aristocracy, and even vampires being of Eastern European origin were solidified in this popular novel, and especially through its 1931 film adaptation starring Hungarian-born actor Bela Lugosi. The novel itself is thought by some to have been inspired in part by the cruel acts of the 15th century Prince Vlad III, also known as Vlad the Impaler, and Countess Elizabeth Bathory, who was believed to have murdered dozens of young women during the 16th and 17th centuries in order to bathe in or possibly drink their blood so as to preserve her own vitality and beauty. In the 20th century, vampires began to turn from being depicted as predominantly animalistic creatures and instead displayed a broader range of human characteristics. Vampire fiction entered a new era with the sympathetic portrayal by Anne Rice in her novel Interview with a Vampire. Rice's book introduced the world to vampires that were brooding and self-loathing and squabbled like humans. Now while Rice's vampires were more vulnerable emotionally than vampires previously ever had been, they were less vulnerable physically, susceptible only to daylight, fire, and the death of their first of their kind. They all possessed superhuman beauty, speed, and senses. Interview with the Vampire was highly popular and sparked a revival of vampire fiction that lasted well into the 21st century, and subsequent vampire stories continued to use characteristics established by Rice. Rice herself wrote several more books in what subsequently became known as the Vampire Chronicles, some of which were later adapted for film. The Vampire is a misunderstood romantic hero picked up steam, particularly in the United States, with the introduction of the steamy HBO television series True Blood. Now that was based on Charlene Harris's Suki Stackhouse book series. Also, vampire romance routines gained popularity with books such as The Vampire Diaries by L.J. Smith and The Twilight Saga by Stephanie Meyer. The Twilight Saga, with its high school romance and vampires that sparkled in the sun rather than bursting into flames, became a cultural sensation, ensuring a vampire trend for years to come. Vampires also enjoyed popularity as unlikely action heroes. Blade, a half-vampire superhero who first appeared in comic books, was the focus of three films, while another popular film series, Underworld, explored an ongoing war between vampires and werewolves and even introduced the notion of a bastard hybrid of the two. What the Slavic and European vampire mythologies both have in common, however, is that they tell an important story about how people understood natural events such as death, decomposition, and the transmission of disease prior to the advent of scientific medicine. They also serve as an illustration of the anxiety present in many Christian societies over the delicate line that seem to separate human from animal. Far from being merely fanciful horror stories, the vampire stories prove to be an ingenious and elaborate folk hypothesis that seeks to explain otherwise puzzling phenomena associated with death and decomposition. In nearly all cases, individuals would be identified as vampires after they were exhumed and found with mysterious conditions of their bodies. The most common reasons were lack of decomposition or because liquid blood was found around their mouth and nose. Decomposition is largely misunderstood even today and is not the rapid or complete process commonly assumed. Putrefaction begins at about 50 degrees and occurs most rapidly at temperatures ranging between 70 and 100. However, 
The temperature even just a few feet below ground is usually much lower and decomposition occurs on average eight times more slowly than on the surface. And in the case of the Medveja village cemetery for example, it would be unsurprising for bodies that were exhumed in January with average surface temperatures at just above freezing to remain relatively intact for weeks, maybe even months. Furthermore, because the bacteria that cause decomposition feed on the protein-rich content of the blood, if there had been significant hemorrhage, as you know usually would occur in a violent death or sudden accident, the process would be significantly slower. This fact may have only reinforced these folk traditions, since it would be expected that violent or rapid deaths were somehow unnatural to begin with. However, the most common way that vampires were identified was when liquid blood was seen around the corpse's mouth, nose, or ears. It was commonly believed that vampires would so gorge themselves on blood that it would leak out after they'd returned to their grave. It was once said that vampires suck the blood of living people and animals in such great abundance that sometimes it comes out of their mouths, their noses, and especially their ears, and that sometimes the body swims in its blood which has spilled out into its coffin. Now what is more likely is that local populations simply fill the gaps in their knowledge about the process of decomposition with folktales that could explain what they had observed. In actuality, during the normal process of decomposition, the lungs become loaded with a dark red sanguineous fluid and the brain liquefies. Depending on the orientation of the body, this liquid would have leaked out as if acted on by the pull of gravity. When these individuals were later exhumed, the red fluid in and around their mouth or nose would only confirm the original assumption. Add to this the eruption of sanguineous fluid when a stake is hammered into their lungs, an event that can emit sounds from a low groan to a high-pitched scream as gases that are generated through decomposition are forced outwards. And the misinterpretation would be complete. In addition to flawed assumptions regarding death and decomposition, certain diseases would only add to folk hypothesis seeking to explain such unusual events. Consequently, it would be imaginable that men and beasts with identical ferocious and bizarre behavior might have been seen by a primitive witness as similar malign beings. It is notable that in early Slavic accounts there was no distinction between vampires and what we would now call werewolves. In some versions, a vampire was simply what a werewolf became after they died. In terms of pathology, for example, humans that have contracted rabies typically die of suffocation or cardiorespiratory arrest. These types of deaths result in post-mortem features consistent with those used to identify a vampire. Blood is less likely to coagulate after death and hemorrhage is more common, resulting in slower decomposition. Humans can also contract rabies by drinking unpasteurized milk or eating undercooked meat from a rabid cow, or through oral exposure to the cow's blood or saliva during preparation. In this way, knowledge of how the rabies virus can spread might have been contained in these folk traditions, even if the actual mechanism remained mysterious. Finally, the historical coincidence that during the period when dramatic tales of vampires were first emerging from Eastern Europe, a major epidemic of rabies in dogs, wolves, and other wild animals was recorded in the same region between 1721 and 1728. This coincidence may have even been identified as early as 1733 when the anonymous physician argued that vampirism is a contagious illness more or less of the same nature as that which comes from the bite of a rabid dog. Now while it is likely that multiple natural factors would have influenced the folk tradition of vampirism, it is remarkable 
that rabies has the potential to connect such seemingly unrelated elements as transmission, behavior, and postmortem pathology. Among the European peasantry, wolves were dreaded because of the physical threat they represented, but also because they could transmit the symptoms that we now understand are caused by the rabies virus. People associated witchcraft and occult forces with animals, as well as the crossing of the line between animals and humans. I think a lot of the fear was based on the fact that humans are animals and what happens if people concede the line rather than try and preserve it. In one newspaper account from Prussia in the 19th century, a farmer was seized with rabies only to run amok through the village as though possessed. He finally took refuge in his own house where he attacked his wife, a young woman to whom he had recently been married. He literally tore her to pieces. After committing the horrible deed, he was then seized with another convulsion and inflicted wounds upon himself from which he died. When neighbors entered the house, both dead bodies were found on the floor, frightfully mangled and still warm. The newspaper account didn't specify whether or not he had been buried face down or ass up. Just as the vampire myth has its origin in historical events, the cultural tradition that gave rise to it may also have had a natural basis. Now, while these early vampire stories share little with the modern myths about such creatures, the folk tradition that spawned them does contain many of the same inherent fears. What happens when people do, in a sense, become animals and lose control of their physical bodies through the display of uncontrolled aggression? I think a lot of these rabies narratives reflect these kinds of fears. They're ultimately about the line between animal and human and the ease with which it can be breached. As early as the 20th century, some villages in Bulgaria still practice corpse impaling. In the 1960s and 70s, a vampire was believed to haunt Highgate Cemetery in London. And in the early 21st century, rumors of vampires caused uproar in Malawi and England alike. The Mercy Brown Vampire Incident occurred in Rhode Island in 1892. It is one of the best documented cases of the exhumation of a corpse in order to perform rituals to banish a non-dead manifestation. The incident was part of the wider New England vampire panic. Several cases of consumption, otherwise known as tuberculosis, occurred in the family of George and Mary Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island. It seems that most members of Brown's family suffered a sequence of tuberculosis infections in the final two decades of the 19th century. Tuberculosis was mostly known as consumption at that time. It was a devastating and much feared widespread disease. Just to give you more insight, tuberculosis, or TB, is an infectious disease usually caused by a bacteria and generally infected the lungs, but it can also affect other parts of the body. Most infections show no symptoms, in which case it is known as latent tuberculosis. About 10% of latent infections progress to active disease, which if left untreated, kills about half of those affected. Typical symptoms of active TB are a chronic cough with blood containing mucus, fever, night sweats, and severe weight loss, which is why historically it was known as consumption, because a person's body wasted away. Tuberculosis is spread from one person to the next through the air when people who have active TB in their lungs cough, spit, speak, or sneeze. This is what made it such a common and contagious and widespread disease at the time. Tuberculosis has been present in humans since ancient times and was often not truly understood. Of the Brown family, the mother, Mary Eliza, was the first to die of the disease. She was followed in 1884 by their eldest daughter, Mary Olive. Well, at least according to her gravestone. 
1891, daughter Mercy and son Edwin also contracted the disease. Friends and neighbors of the Browns believe that one of the dead family members was a vampire, although they did not specifically use that name. They were certain that it was one of the Brown family members that came back from the afterlife cursed and was causing Edwin's illness. In general, most people at that time believed this nonsense because it seemed to be in accordance with threads of contemporary folklore, which linked multiple deaths in one family to undead activity. Consumption was a poorly understood condition at the time and the subject of much superstition. Head of the family, George Brown was persuaded to give permission to exhume several bodies of the Brown family members. Once he conceded, villagers, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter exhumed the bodies on March 17, 1892. The bodies of both Mary and Mary Olive exhibited the expected level of decomposition, so they were thought to be in the clear. However, the corpse of daughter Mercy exhibited almost no decomposition and still had blood in the heart and liver and kidneys. This was taken as a sign that the young woman was undead and the likely cause of young Edwin's condition. More realistically, her lack of decomposition was more likely due to her body being stored in freezer-like conditions in the above-ground crypt during the two months following her death. As superstition dictated, Mercy's heart and liver were burned, and the ashes were mixed with water to create a sort of tonic that was given to poor sick Edwin to drink. It was an effort to resolve his illness and stop the influence of his evil undead sister Mercy. That's right, poor Edwin had to drink his sister. Now, unfortunately, drinking the ashy remains of his sister's internal organs did not work, and the young man died two months later. What remained of Mercy's body was later buried in the cemetery of the Baptist Church in Exeter. The Mercy Brown incident was the inspiration for Caitlin R. Kiernan's short story, So Runs the World Away, which makes explicit reference to unfortunate events that plagued the Brown family. It has also been suggested by scholars that Bram Stoker, who we talked about earlier, knew about the Mercy Brown case through newspaper articles and based his novel's character Lucy Westerna on Mercy, who was thought to be kind, young, blonde, and demure, a woman who found herself waiting for the right man to come along to marry her. She was, however, thought of as not a passive woman who clearly expressed her sexual desires. The Mercy Brown story is also referred to in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House. Okay gang, that will do it for this episode. I believe I have already talked your ears off with all this deviant history. There is just so much more to discuss on the topic though. So maybe we might just find ourselves digging deeper into the dark, dank world of the Nosferatu. As always, if you have any ideas of subject matter that you would like us to cover, Please, don't be shy. Just go to our website at www.thelinebegins2blur.com and you can record your story on our Anchor message recorder. We can play that on our podcast. Or if you're feeling shy about sharing your voice with the world, you can always submit via written account using the submission form that will send us the deets directly to our email inbox. Also, we would like to thank our new sponsor, Devil's Hide. Please check out their site and show some support. You won't be disappointed. And with their awesome and creeptastic shirts, hoodies, hats, and accessories, you will definitely find something that tickles your fancy. Don't forget to use your special discount code BLUR20 to get 20% off your order. We will be launching some Line Begins to Blur exclusives to them very soon. I will share that info with you once we are good to go. This episode was produced by me, Chris G, and 
most of the music and sound effects you heard today were provided by DJ Elite. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you come back. Until next time, take care, my friends. You've been listening to the Line Begins to Blur podcast with your host, Chris G. Join us every other week for new episodes. 